Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're going to be talking about insanity in Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu. Before we jump into the main topic, however, what's going on? Well, I saw on Twitter that Torchlight Candles have some bleeding brain candles and candles with metal dice embedded in them. So when you say bleeding brain candles, are these like real brains or are these candles that are made to look like brains? I believe they're made of wax, Scott. Sorry to disappoint you. Okay. Well, oh yeah, I, I would insist that they were ethically sourced brains, that they were real brains. Oh, I think so. No real brains were harmed in the making of this product. Okay. Oh. Hmm. I've just realised this seems quite inappropriate given the topic of our show today, but... But, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's too late to worry about that, Paul. Fair enough. And, Matt, you've got some news as well, I believe. Yeah, just thinking about it, there's a couple of bits of uh, news from the land of Kickstarter. Woohoo! Yeah, well, um, the first one, well, you, you don't even know what it's about yet. Do you, have a, do you have a residential address in the land of Kickstarter, Matt? Yeah. Do you live there just, now? Uh, anything, that says, anything that says Cthulhu gets delivered to my door. Yeah, I think he's a dual citizen. Yeah. <laughs> the next part of the Delta Green Kickstarter is delivered. Fall of Delta Green came through my door. Ah, right. Yeah, the gumshoe version of Vietnam era Delta Green while it was still a uh, legit organisation came through. That looks pretty good. Yeah. And do other books cover that same period or is that kind of unique to that gumshoe setting? From previous memory, I mean, my, my knowledge of Delta Green is not encyclopedic. But it has lots of references to what took place around that mm. time period. And I know I've played one adventure, no, two adventures actually, that were run at Continuum over the last few years that dealt with Vietnam era operations yeah. that were going to go into the now mythical Vietnam issue of the Black Seal. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. My limited understanding of Delta Green is that all the stuff that's been published so far uh, before this has all been contemporary settings. I mean, all, all right, the earlier stuff is almost a period setting now because it came out, what, 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. For the most part, but there have been scenarios set previously. And the and fiction certainly, line dealt with some stories in that time period yeah, as well. the stories kind of embedded the setup of Delta Green in, in that period. But I guess Gumshoe have sectioned off that setting for their game then. That seems like a good choice. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's not limited to just Vietnam or Cambodia or any of the Far Eastern setting. It takes place in the US as well, so there's plenty of 1960s politics. Um, well, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're recommending the likes of James Elroy's US trilogy, uh, American Tabloid, Cold 6000, and Bloods Are Over as sort of called key inspirational reading for, uh, for that material, which, yeah, definitely gets me enthusiastic about it. And what was the second thing, Matt? Oh, the second thing, coming to a Kickstarter campaign near you fairly shortly and has been uh, promoted on uh, Seize for Cthulhu's uh, Secret Lab group over on Facebook. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> they're doing a baby line of plushies now. Yay! What does this even mean? Uh, yeah, you know, the regular plushies, the ones that are about a foot tall. Right. Uh, they've done a green one, a red one, a purple one, a black one, and a rainbow one. Yeah. They'll be doing a glow, uh, glow-in-the-dark glow one eventually uh, that lights up with his little eyes all being shut. Uh, they're planning on doing a series of, at least to be initially, three that are half the size of that, so about so six inches tall. Right. Um, Still that, too, six inches too big. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, but specifically for little baby cultists, you've got like a little powder blue one, an off-colour green one, and a pink right. one. Yeah, so, oh, they're cute. <laughs> 
Well, there you go. If you want to... Uh, we need a picture find, of Scott's reaction just to go along with the podcast. you got to find a gift for uh, any tiny cultists out there, you're sorted. I had a message on Discord the other day uh, from one of our listeners, Dom Allen, who has some rather exciting news, which, which I believe actually ties in with your plans for next month, Paul. Well, it does indeed, Scott, but you pick this up independently. It's a showing of Providence, The Shadow Over Lovecraft by Dominic Allen and Simon Maida. This is on at the Edinburgh Fringe this summer, and I'm going to it. I was working with my daughter the other day on working on an extensive timetable of all the events and shows that we're going to see at the Edinburgh Fringe. And top of the list, we kind of selected ones that we definitely wanted to see. And top of the ones we definitely wanted to see was this one. Yeah, well, Dominic sent through a, a little uh, preview for the thing. He's, there's both an audio preview and a little uh, video that they've done. Uh, it looks like a lot of fun. You should be in for a treat. Oh, excellent. And he did mention that they're planning on taking it down to uh, London, perhaps, uh, in October for the London Horror Festival. In which case, maybe I'll get to see it too. Yeah, it's billed as a comedy horror, or with, yeah. at least with comedic elements, which is uh, kind of intriguing. Yeah, I mean, certainly from the trailer, it did look comedic. And if anybody's around and also going, I'll be going on August the 15th, the showing on that day. So if you're around and want to say hi, then uh, it'd be great to see anybody that's listening to this show. You're, you're going to wear your good friend's T-shirt to make yourself stand out. Yes, people. yes. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is insane. It's an adjective, one, part A, of exhibiting or afflicted with mental derangement, not used in psychiatric diagnosis. B, characteristic of or associated with persons who are mentally deranged. C, intended for use by such persons. Two, having been determined to be in a condition that meets the legal definition of insanity. Three, immoderate, wild. Four, very foolish, absurd. And yeah, I, I was quite interested in the fact, I never really realised this before, but that insane is a legal term, and it still is to this day, but it's, I mean, it's not a medical term. Yeah, that's probably quite important you know, when we come to the larger discussion, that people in the medical profession do not refer to patients as being insane. But when you're trying to decide whether someone meets a legal definition of competence because of their mental state, then that's where insanity comes in. Law.com defines insanity as a mental illness of such a severe nature that a person cannot distinguish fantasy from reality cannot conduct his or her affairs due to psychosis, or is subject to uncontrollable impulsive behaviour. And on the Lovecraftometer, it appears 43 times in his work as insane, five as insanely, and insanity sees a mere 12 appearances. Yeah, Lovecraft was far more fond of the more prosaic mad or madness, so he used mad 123 times, and madness 111 times. And that probably makes sense, because I think out of the two, that's probably the more colloquially used. And now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word insane in his writings. From Polaris. 
And as I writhe in my guilty agony, frantic to save the city whose peril every moment grows, and vainly striving to shake off this unnatural dream of a house of stone and brick, south of a sinister swamp and a cemetery on a low hillock, the pole star, evil and monstrous, leers down from the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye, which strives to convey some strange message, yet recalls nothing, save that it once had a message to convey. And from the music of Eric Zahn. Yet when I looked from that highest of all gable windows, looked while the candles sputtered and the insane vial howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below and no friendly lights gleaming from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space illimitable. Unimagined space alive with motion and music and having no semblance to anything on earth. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. He screamed and screamed and screamed in a voice whose falsetto panic no acquaintance of his would ever have recognised. And though he could not rise to his feet, he crawled and rolled desperately away over the damp pavement, where dozens of Tartarian wells poured forth their exhausted whining and yelping to answer his own insane cries. And now on to our main topic, insanity in Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu. Well, we say in Call of Cthulhu, we're actually going to save the discussion about Call of Cthulhu itself until next episode. This episode is much more about laying the groundwork, talking about the way that insanity is portrayed in Lovecraft, his fiction. We'll go into Lovecraft's life a little bit. Back in episode 11, we looked at the rules for insanity in Call of Cthulhu. So we won't be covering those again, but if you want to hear an overview of those, you can go back and check out that show. Just as a, a general warning, I mean, we are going to throw around an awful lot of terms that that might be seen as pejorative in the modern day. I think outside a legal context, you know, insane and, and mad, they're used a lot in the game, but I don't think you'd necessarily use them in that context in regular conversation, or at least not if you were trying to be sensitive. But I think because we're talking about primarily portrayal in media and games, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll discuss these terms in a way that we wouldn't discuss I- I real mental illness. So insanity in Lovecraft, how does he portray it? Where does it crop up in his stories? And why does it play such a major role? Well, and also, does it play as major role as we think? Let's start off by looking at what probably influenced Lovecraft to use insanity as an element in his stories, which is his own family background, his life. Something we also covered in a previous episode, episode 100, if you want some supplementary listening here. Both of Lovecraft's parents suffered from mental health issues and neurological problems. His father, Winfield Scott Lovecraft, was institutionalised in 1893, a month before Howard's third birthday. This was down to neurosyphilis. This is a very common symptom of tertiary syphilis. Syphilis goes through a number of stages. First of all, if it's a venereal disease, then it, it presents as you know, a very obvious infection of the genitals. And at this stage, it's still fairly treatable, at least it is these days. Then you, know, you move on to uh, secondary syphilis, which happens a little while later, which is uh, much easier to miss. It's a widespread rash across the body. And then this tertiary syphilis kicks in years and years later, sometimes decades later. 
This is when people go kind of archetypally mad, uh, which is exactly what happened to Lovecraft's father. The symptoms of neurosyphilis are quite alarming. Apparently they include personality changes, confusion, depression, irritability and seizures. Lovecraft states that he never visited his father in hospital. Although there is some debate amongst scholars about this, his father died in Butler Hospital in 1898. Lovecraft then would be eight years old. He stated later that he believed his father was unconscious throughout his entire stay in hospital, which um, seems unlikely. Mm. Yeah, that does seem a little extreme. Yeah, wishful thinking, I, I, I believe. Mm. Lovecraft himself was tested for congenital syphilis while he was being treated for cancer, but showed no signs of it. Yeah, this is one of the risks with syphilis, which is it can actually be passed on to your children if you have syphilis when you actually have the, the child in the first place. Luckily, Lovecraft dodged that particular bullet. Lovecraft's mother, Sarah Susan Phillips Lovecraft, seems to have been an overbearing, controlling presence in little young Lovecraft's life. One of their neighbours described their home as having a strange and shut-up air. Got no problem with that, that pretty much describes my house. (laughs) She was controlling enough that she convinced the family doctor to intervene when HPL tried to join the National Guard in 1917, and when he was 27. Yeah, and, and reading about you know, Lovecraft's living conditions at the time, one neighbour reported that Sarah Lovecraft talked about weird and fantastical creatures that rushed out from behind buildings and from corners in the dark. And shortly after that, she herself was institutionalised at the Butler Hospital, where her husband had died. I don't think there's been a proper diagnosis of what was wrong with her. But, you know, having read stuff, particularly from Joshi's biography of Lovecraft, it sounded like she was quite severely depressed. You know, she'd become a a shut-in. She did have these almost psychotic delusions. Maybe there was some kind of psychotic disorder there. Whatever it was, it must have been terrifying to the young Lovecraft. Yeah, I mean, all this was taking place in his very formative young years, and to lose one's mother and father in that way. This whole thing about the creatures rushing at her out of the dark really kind of struck a chord with me because my mother was an alcoholic and she had some some mental health problems with it. But I remember particularly, you know, a number of times she tried detoxing herself and she'd get the most florid hallucinations when going through DTs. I remember being quite terrified as a kid when we were in the house together or the flat and she became convinced of pretty much that same delusion, that there were creatures moving around in the shadows, and that you know, she kept hallucinating things like big cats in, in the corner mm. of the room, stalking her and ready to pounce on her. To have those second-hand delusions as a child is, is frightening. And Lovecraft himself recounts things that certainly seem to imply that he had mental health problems himself. He complains that my own headaches and nervous irritability and exhaustion tendency began as early as my existence itself. And he describes near breakdowns when he was eight and then 10 years old. And certainly in his late teens, he drops out of school. And that's kind of a bit of a blank period in his biography. Not really very clear what he was doing during that period. But I think it seems like he couldn't really cope with life very well and was somewhat of a recluse in that period, Mm. somewhat unproductive as well. Well, he specifically said, I didn't inherit a very good set of nerves, since near relatives on both sides of my ancestry were prone to headaches, nerve exhaustion and breakdowns. And I think again there, I mean, particularly with, you know, having seen both his parents go through fairly traumatic things, 
This is perhaps the origin of what we see in a lot of Lovecraft stories, that fear about what is inherited, about what's in your blood, about what what you're getting from Mm. your family. And it's also the influence of his mother. He records, or other people record, that she would undermine him a lot and undermine the way he looked as well and make him feel keep saying he looked really ugly or you know commenting on his features in a negative way which must have contributed to his a lack of confidence i would have thought well, there was that whole thing as well about the fact that he was raised as a girl until he was six years old that you know he had long flowing tresses that his mother uh, made him wear dresses this wasn't particularly uncommon at that time it was something of a thing to raise young infants mm. as you know as if they were girls but, I mean, the fact that it went on until he was six and the fact that his mother seemed to prefer him as a girl and all this kind of talk about how ugly he was seemed to come after that. It's also one of the reasons, I think, why he had this, not compulsion, but definitely this lack of willingness to smile whenever he had a photo taken. I, think I can think of one instance yeah. where he actually does smile in a photo. that he mm. always. I think it was that expression that he was taught or it was ingrained from a young age that that was the epitome of ugly. Yeah, which led to that fantastic meme that you see uh, on a number of Lovecraft forums now where, where people are referring to photographs of Lovecraft, saying that yeah, every time Lovecraft is photographed, he's obviously hiding a bird in his mouth. <laughs> now we have a look at insanity in Lovecraft's fiction. Well, let's start off with an early work, Dagon, which... <laughs> you may remember from such other podcasts as episode 98 of our show. <laughs> but anyway, the protagonist in that is portrayed as going mad from the sight of a monstrous figure and losing touch with reality and becoming addicted to morphine. And I think this is an interesting one from the point of view of comparing what's in Lovecraft to what's in Call of Cthulhu, because I think this more than most other Lovecraft stories, is that archetypal thing of you see the monster and you go mad. In most of Lovecraft's other stories, it's a more insidious thing. It's a chipping away of sanity or it's larger understandings and cosmic shocks. But in this case, he sees a big scary monster and loses his shit. He literally says, Then suddenly I saw it. I think I went mad then. I mean, there you go. Uh, the fact is that ambiguity. He's not too sure. Was it then? Was it earlier? Was it before? The example he gives of the way that the protagonist reacts to this as well, I think also ties in quite nicely with the way Call of Cthulhu investigators react to mental shocks. He says, Of my frantic ascent to the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I want to know what he was singing. Uh, yes, some nice cherry sea shanties, maybe. I'd like to think he was singing the sea shanties that the Andrew Lehman led us through <laughs> at Necronomicon. They were marvellous. But I think this idea of seeing the monster and just going mad is a surprisingly rare thing in Lovecraft stories, as I hinted at earlier. We do see a few other examples of it. So, for example, in At the Mountains of Madness seeing the Shoggoth and... Danforth looking back over his shoulder as the yeah. plane goes back over the mountains and then just screaming and no yeah. dying, not having a clue what he was screaming about. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, how often in Lovecraft stories do the characters actually see a monster? It's not in every story that happens, but when it does happen, 
it doesn't seem unusual for it to lead to madness or not. I don't know. You've got stories like, um, say, The Shadow of Rinsmith or The Whisper in Darkness, um, where people see creatures and they don't necessarily go mad as a result. Randolph Carter seems quite blasé in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and he meets a whole plethora of... Well, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the the only other example that springs to mind is uh, Robert Blake at the end of Haunter of the Dark. And then in The Rats in the Walls, we have our protagonists descending into gibbering madness and cannibalism when confronted with the horrors beneath Exxon Priory. If you're going to go crazy, you might as well eat something. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't, want to, on a, you know, don't want to go mad on an empty stomach. Yeah, you've got, got to be full down there. Okay, well, does that help? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, we literally do have the guy at the end of it sitting, eating one of his companions after undergoing a bout of amnesia as well. So he's discovered eating the companion, but he doesn't quite realise how he got there. Yeah. No, no, I tell you. I'm not that demon swineherd in the Twilight Grotto. It was not Edward Norris' face fat on that flabby fungus thing. Who says I'm a Delapore? That is what they say, I said, when they found me in the blackness after three hours found me crouching in the blackness over that plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris. But I think this is a very different kind of madness than we see in Dagon and the other stories we've mentioned so far, because this is much more related to the protagonist's realisation of what being a Delapore means. Being confronted with the reality of this hidden world under Exxon Priory, it's about the triggering of the corruption in his bloodline, I think, rather than just a simple psychic shock. Well, whether it's the triggering of his bloodline or whether it's the shock at the realisation of his own history that brings this about, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a combination of them. This reaction would have been very different if we'd seen it from the point of view of one of the other characters who went down there. Because, all right, yeah, I mean, they see you know, a hidden world down there and they potentially see some hideous creatures and stuff like that. But without that personal aspect... Along those lines, it reminds me an awful lot of facts concerning the late Arthur German and his family. It's the same thing of, uh, I've suddenly realised what there is in my bloodline and I cannot cope with it. Of course, there's the big one, The Call of Cthulhu, which we also discussed in episode 109. The, The Dreams of Cthulhu Spread Madness is probably the archetypal presentation of Lovecraftian insanity. It affects whole swathes of artists and people in mental institutions all across the US. There's a couple of very different presentations of madness in this story. And the first one is that whole idea of piecing things together, that unwanted revelation, which is is summed up in that classic opening uh, section. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality, and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. And if we think about that, I mean, what does that mean? It means that, to me, it implies that if we really understood the universe and what was going on, then we just wouldn't be able to cope with it. It'd just be mind-blowing. That's difficult for us to conceive of, I think, but that's maybe the point. 
Well, I, I think it's also very interesting from a historical point of view of when this was written, in that Lovecraft was living in an age where there was modernism creeping into the arts, there was uh, the sciences were changing our understanding of the world through physics. This was the heyday of Einstein, the birth of quantum physics. Art was becoming much more subjective. In some respects, it's him almost railing against that. There was a sort of safety in the worldview that he grew up with that was being challenged constantly. And and certainly in his correspondence, he railed against modernism, certainly in the arts, a fair few times. I, he embraced the scientific side of things. Mm. I think this reflects you know, something that we all go through as we get older, that feeling that this is no longer the world we belong in. It's also interesting that given the direct interpretation of the quote, that it's one or the other, that people will either go mad or they can retreat to this dark age, but which implies that they're not going crazy, they're just almost socially degenerating back to a point where they're ploughing the fields with hoes and going back to the medieval times. Well, it seems like they'd, you know, they'd break the machines and destroy all this knowledge. Yeah, there wouldn't be any science. So that terror, if you like, of this knowledge would be blotted out. So it's either you take it on board and go mad because you can't deal with it, or you close your eyes and smash it with sledgehammers, it seems to me, mm. in which case you end up back in a dark age. It's not just the machines, it's the knowledge. It's you, you burn the books. Well, I was using yeah. that metaphorically, yeah, but the knowledge, the books, the science and all that, you turn your back on it and go backwards into history, if you like. The great old ones promote Ludditism. Yeah. Which I guess, you know, is perhaps paralleling with previous epochs when great civilizations have fallen, Library of Alexandria gets burnt and things like that. I think there's also an element of this being at the crux of cosmic horror. And I think cosmic horror is something we should get into a lot more in a subsequent episode. But cosmic horror is very much about learning one's true place in the universe, learning how insignificant one is. If you're in a world, particularly, that has been very geocentric, that has been very humanocentric, that has been informed by religion to make us seem very important, the revelation that in the cosmic scheme of things we don't matter, that our lifespans are just a blip in the flow of time, is, I think, quite a terrifying thing. And I think, you know, this is very much what he's getting at here as well. Would you think it is a terrifying thing or you think some people find it a terrifying thing? As I mentioned on earlier podcasts, I, I am of a somewhat nihilistic bent. And I find if I think about these things too much, which I fairly regularly do, then, it, I mean, it can lead to derealization and depersonalization and this feeling that absolutely nothing matters in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I guess it depends on your fundamental outlook and disposition, I suppose. But when I think about that in terms of there is nothing beyond this life, we are just little dots on a, a little dot in a universe. I don't find that a depressing thought. I just think, well, that's the way it is and life goes on. I don't. We're just here for a short time and we should make the most of it and be nice to each other. Yeah, and I do agree with that. And I don't think that I find it depressing. When I say that it, it kind of strips away meaning from things, I don't mean that my reaction to that is to get depressed. But it is just that, not even futility, but the world around me starts to feel very, very alien. I find I have a sense of detachment from everything that seems to normally be important in life. And I find this both liberating and terrifying when it happens. But that's what I mean. Is that just your underlying disposition, just 
allowing that to come up to the to the surface, if you like. I, I think yes, it is that. With that, yeah. when you sort of scrub away the the day to day gloss that keeps us all busy, what we're going to have for tea and what we're going to watch on TV and all the surface things that you know, if we realise that actually they're not important, what's yeah. below that? I mean, it goes beyond that, I know. But I find it very difficult to hold on to any concept of consensus reality when it comes to human social structures, when it comes to basically the meaning of anything in society. All of that stuff just crumbles as soon as I start to think about it too much. What do you mean you you lose the hold on consensus reality? Because I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. I mean, because this seems to be a bit like what Lovecraft's getting on about. Just the the basics of human interactions, a sense of self, um, a sense of the reality or importance or meaning of, of anything around me. So you stop connecting with any value in that? Yes. I stop connecting with the ability to see it as anything other than play acting. One of the things I found very poignant about Watchmen when I first read it, that the, um, the comedian, when he says that it's all just a big joke, mm. yeah, it's just a shared delusion redefining the edges of what you believe to be reality, in inverted commas, that suddenly reality is just the world when it's not. It's just a far, far bigger place. But, I mean, that can be quite a liberating thing as well. I keep thinking back to that classic Bill Hicks routine where he talks about how it's just a ride. You know, don't worry about it, life's just a ride. I can't remember it word for word, but that, that's basically what it boils down to. You know, all the things that we convince ourselves are important and are real in our life, they're, they're just kind of flashing lights on the fairground, right? Well, that kind of implies you get off at the end and do something else, but did he mean that or was he... Bill Hicks did an awful lot of psychedelic drugs, and I think, yeah, he did sort of see some form of perhaps reality beyond death in a way that I don't. Right, because clearly Lovecraft doesn't personally believe that i don't think i think i don't think he was religious at all and i think he, oh, no. he issued that and also his, his characters in the fiction don't seem to buy into that either his protagonists are much like him in that they're you know scientific rationalists he shows us this world full of or universe full of monsters but his protagonists seem more like him in the and that's the the horror they confront is these monsters that are massive in the universe but there's not often a conflict between the characters of a religious nature and having this otherworldly stuff imposed on them. No. Which I would have thought when he was writing would have been a more prevalent concern. But I don't think Lovecraft was particularly good at putting himself in other people's heads. Mm. Whenever Lovecraft writes a protagonist, that protagonist is very much a reflection of Lovecraft. And there are a few exceptions, but in terms of their beliefs, in terms of the way they act, I see it maybe not quite as, as author insertion, but he never really sort of stretches himself to try to write someone who's radically different than himself. Hmm. What do you think we could find out, Matt, scientifically about the universe that could actually drive us mad? You know, in reality, really, what, what could we find out that would be so mind-shattering? Can you think of anything? In terms, in a mythos sense or in a real world well, sense? Well, in a real world sense. I mean, that's kind of what, you know, he's not saying it's true, but he's that's what he's putting forward in The Call of Cthulhu. You know, that thing about driving us mad or, or, or going into a new dark age because of this correlating of our knowledge of the sciences and arts. The other thing that really springs to mind for me would be something along the concept of the big crunch, that if it was 
seen that, in fact, the universe wasn't expanding, that it was contracting and that there was nothing we could do to stop it, that we are ultimately, our existence as a race has a finite lifespan. But and- we know that already because you know, entropy shows us that. I mean, you know, long before the universe collapses in on itself, the sun is going to burn mm-hmm. out. All life on Earth will be destroyed. I fully understand that. But I think at the minute, because we're seeing evidence that it's still expanding, it's, oh, it's way off in the distance. It's not going to not worry us. But I think it has the more, more immediate effect if, shit, they're coming together. It suddenly it becomes a lot more real if you see it after that turning but, point. But uh, then, then along those lines, I mean, would you... Uh, so, for example, there's a theory kicking around at the moment. There was a, a comet, I believe, that NASA had identified as being a risk for a near miss on Earth and that it might, I think, in a couple of hundred years pose us a risk. But it's due to come near the Earth, I think, next year. There's a conspiracy theory kicking around the internet at the moment that NASA is hiding the fact that it's going to collide with the Earth because they don't want to cause mass panic and that all human life on Earth will probably be wiped out in a year's time when this comet hits us. So let's say that, you know, we do find there's one coming and it's going to hit the Earth Christmas this year. What timing? Well, whatever, <laughs> right? I'll just pick it up. But here's your present. <laughs> but, um, ho, ho, ho. All right, let's say a different time of year. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is would that make people insane? I don't think it would drive people mad. It would cause some fear and some panic. Mm-hmm. Would it oh, drive I don't, I don't people I, I crazy? Think, I don't know I, what would happen. I, I mean, think those times would be very interesting because. I think, obviously, different people would react in wildly different ways, but I think the idea that we're sort of freed from long-term consequences, that nothing we do in the long term matters anymore. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who perhaps are constrained in morality by fear of consequences. Oh, Um, certainly. This this would almost be like this idea from the Call of Cthulhu, that then we shall become as the great old ones, you know, free to to go around and, and murder and and do horrible things. A holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Yes. And I think for some people it would be that because we're all going to be dead in six months. What does it matter? So this veneer of civilization would crack. I I think so. Disappear, perhaps. I mean, I think that is the thing that keeps rationality and civilization, I think, I remember an interview with Allen Ginsberg, the poet, when he was said he was looking out of the window, the people in the street going about their ordered lives. It just occurred to him, you know, why aren't these people running around killing each other and fucking each other? I mean, they are, right? But not all the time. Why, how, how is it that we've got this civilization and such order? And I wonder that myself. You know, yeah. what is it that... I mean, there's, there's lots of people that are very law-abiding and, and civilised, but there's also a lot of people that would go against that and we only have to go back a few hundred years and you know there are roving bands of people and lawlessness and that terrifies me to have lived in a society like that um well a lot of people around the world still do well indeed yeah yeah i mean we're very lucky to live in such a a law-abiding civilized place i mean for all its faults luton is only a few miles down the m1 well there is luton yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) what about then some monster coming out of the sea like Cthulhu or something coming from the stars or whatever. And when us when we say monster, we've got to mean alien, right? Yeah. Clo- Cloverfield happens. Cloverfield happens or arrival happens or some alien force, whether it's overtly monster movie kind of horror thing, you know, Mars attacks, or or whether it's something more benevolent or just weird, you know, but 
what we see in Lovecraftian horror is very different than, say, Cloverfield. Because Cloverfield or Godzilla or whatever, that is a big fuck-off monster coming out of the sea or wherever or falling from the sky and going stomp, stomp, stomp. There's not really any indication of intelligence there, of, of motive. Whereas Cthulhu, I think, is a far more insidious presence. Uh, sure, he is a big monster who can eat a D6 investigators per round, but he is the high priest of gods beyond our comprehension. He is party to secrets that would destroy the human mind. His dreams leak out and seep into the human mind, corrupting and destroying it. And his followers do terrible things in his name. I mean, that is, for me, far more terrifying than something like Cloverfield because of the implications. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, so, but, but why would Cthulhu drive people insane is it because he can touch them psychically in their dreams and so on is yeah. it what he symbolizes in some way is it the rest of the mythos that comes with him I, I think a lot of it is just the fact that perhaps the human mind isn't capable of dealing with the truly alien again i mean this is something probably far more from lovecraft's time uh, than now but this idea that we sort of see running through particularly Western culture, that certain ideas, that certain beliefs are corrosive to morality, to sanity, and that just exposure to them will drive one mad. Well, that's so, kind of what I question, really. I mean, is that actually a thing? I mean, I, I, hard to quantify. I, I think it's it's certainly a conceit of cosmic horror. But, well, I, let, let's look at it. I mean, this this might be a bit insensitive. But let's look at it from the point of view of comparing it to psychosis. Someone who's, who's experiencing a psychotic illness will experience terrifying delusions, potentially voices telling them to do horrible things or undermining their sense of self or their sense of worth, have intrusive thoughts and ideas. I mean, obviously this is all subjective, but the fact is that for these influences can make it almost impossible for someone to function. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, we're looking at potentially an objective version of that, an external version of that. You can sort of almost see Cthulhu as a mass generator of psychosis. I was going to draw on another quote, one from, I believe it's from the Dunwich Horror, where Waitley's looking through the, the Necronomicon and where it says that you, you will know the great old ones as a foulness ye shall know them. Um, almost thinking that they are the mental equivalent of a physical disease that is just a reaction the human body, or in this case the human mind, has to that kind of stimulus. Whereas an Ebola virus may start making the body bleed and liquefy internal organs, meeting a great old one or seeing a great old one provokes a similar kind of reaction in the human mind. It is a stimulus that ultimately causes the breakdown of sanity. So it almost causes an organic change in the brain, you're saying, yeah. rather than a sort of cognitive one yeah exactly a bit like again it's almost like a chemical reaction i mean that's interesting because you don't necessarily see that explained in lovecraft or explored but i'm currently reading the croning by laird baron which is i think one of the better cosmic horror stories i've read there's this conceit in there that's almost exactly that that there are these ancient and human gods from beyond that are very Lovecraftian. But it's the fact that, yeah, direct exposure to them just does cause brain damage. It becomes almost like a form of dementia, that being in their presence just eats holes in your brain. Hmm. And you, you forget your encounters with them, but you're scarred by them. 
And I suppose if we look to not just history, but the modern day as well, still going on, is war must be one of the most traumatic and horrific things that people experience. And that has a terrible effect on many people who are caught up in it, whether civilians or uh, military personnel. And many people come out of that with mental health problems of one type or another. And that's people fighting people, which is horrific. What if they were some kind of alien monsters that were invading or were just there and were, you know, somehow changing people or possessing people and committing acts as vile and terrible as, as things we see in the war? We can't really imagine what it's like to be in a war, but we can read about it and we can visualise it and we've seen it in documentaries and films. And can imagine that with a mythos twist on it or a monstrous twist on it, it would just perhaps be worse? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a way of amping up PTSD, but I think that's sort of getting away from what makes Cthulhu's dreams horrific. And there's a different angle on that just occurred to me. So I mean, we've talked a few times, mentioned the word imagine or imagination. But fundamentally, I mean, the human mind is limited in its imagination. Our imagination is a largely a way of reinterpreting and reordering and finding new angles on our own experiences. So, for example, if you look over you know, books on demonology, for example, you know, medieval books on demonology, you've got all these weird and bizarre demons, but all of them are described in terms of, is this bit of an animal and this bit of an animal and, and these things stuck together? Hmm. I mean, even Lovecraft's descriptions in his stories... It was half insect, half fish, half yeah, dog. Exactly. Yeah. With a tentacle... Or, or even where he's describing something as alien as the old ones and at the Mountains of Madness, he's still describing them in fairly mundane terms. They're weird things, but he's describing them in very relatable terms. So all of these things are within the confines of the human imagination, because that is the prison in which we work. Our, our imaginations do not extend beyond that. And I think what's perhaps so insidious and dangerous about, say, the influence of the Great Old Ones, that psychic connection with Cthulhu, is it's introducing ideas and visions and concepts into our mind that are beyond human imagination. Thinking in computing terms, you know, it's like a buffer overflow. You're, you're suddenly dumping more information or kinds of information into the human mind that it is just not physically or mechanically able to cope with. Like how the hell does someone get swallowed by an angle? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Beyond that, I mean, the kinds of thoughts that a creature like Cthulhu would have, if those were in your head, your brain would not be capable of processing those. Trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Hmm. Yeah, Something's yeah. going to break when you try and force it through. And it seems like some of the concepts that we might read about in quantum physics and so on, you know, as a layperson reading it, they do seem very bizarre. And the quantum doesn't work the same as the, as the gross level, perhaps. But if some of those things can manifest, then... It just seems very hard to, to get my head around some of those ideas. So perhaps that's the thing. Perhaps there are just things that we would not be able to cope with then. So we kind of come back to that full circle, to the fact that there'd be knowledge and, and so on that would be more than we could process. Yeah, and I think the way that Lovecraft describes the effect of that in The Call of Cthulhu is quite interesting. It's a slightly edited version of the full passage here. He says... Here was a nocturnal suicide in London, where a lone sleeper had leaped from a window after a shocking cry. 
Here, likewise, a rambling letter to the editor of a paper in South America, where a fanatic deduces a dire future from visions he has seen. A dispatch from California describes a theosophist community as donning white robes en masse for some glorious fulfilment which never arrives, whilst items from India speak guardedly of serious native unrest toward the end of March. Voodoo orgies multiply in Haiti, and African outposts report ominous mutterings. American officers in the Philippines find certain tribes bothersome about this time, and New York policemen are mobbed by hysterical Levantines. And so numerous are the recorded troubles in insane asylums that only a miracle can have stopped the medical fraternity from noting strange parallelisms and drawing mystified conclusions. Just as an aside, that is also classic Lovecraft in that the white people are affected in fairly genteel ways, but as soon as anyone isn't white, they start acting like debased savages. <laughs> Apart from if you're in California, then you have a nice uh, orderly uh, congregation. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's not orgiastic or a blood, a blood orgy or something like that. Also, psychiatric institutions seem to play quite a part in Lovecraft's stories. We see this in... Beyond the Wall of Sleep, which takes place in a state psychopathic institution. Patient Joe Slater is believed to be mad, but it transpires that he is actually host to an extraterrestrial intelligence. And this is you know, something we see in a few of Lovecraft's stories, where there are people who are described as being mad, but we actually learn that they're not, that they're just simply not human intelligence. Shadow out of time. Yeah. yeah, or even the case of Charles Dexter Ward, where Ward is sent off to alienists who treat him for this change in personality, but it's not a mental illness, it's just not Ward anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm. And don't we see it in Shadow of Rinsmouth as well, isn't it? Towards the end, I mean, Olmsted, once he learns the truth about himself and his bloodline, you know, we, we get that fantastic final section where he's sitting there contemplating suicide. He's got the gun. Yes. And is he in an institution at that point? No. no. Oh, okay. Quite lack security if they manage to get a gun in there. Well, oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think of that. Um, in Aaron Vanek's film, Return Twinsmouth, that kicks off, as I recall, with somebody going to break Robert Olmsted out of some kind of psychiatric institution. Yeah, so I think those kind of institutions play quite a big role, both in the game and in the stories and in Lovecraft's life. Yeah, I mean, they crop up a few times in the stories. Again, perhaps not quite as much as you might think. I sat down as an exercise when when I was researching this episode and went through every Lovecraft story I, I could find something about characters going insane in. And I think it worked out as less than a third of his total body of work. I mean, we, we think of typical Lovecraftian stories as being like the, the cliche of Call of Cthulhu, you die or go mad. It is a common theme in Lovecraft's work, but it's not quite as ubiquitous as you might think. Meanwhile, on social media... Yes, we've had some feedback and comments on our episode about subterranean spaces in Call of Cthulhu. Chris Glue, over on our Google Plus community, says... Having grown up in Wales and the southwest of England, I note that the British mining industry, once a massive labour-intensive endeavour has now all but been mothballed. I can't help but think all of those miles of dark tunnels left abandoned. Some Cornish tin mines stretched out beneath the sea and have been uncovered by coastal erosion, flooding the lower chambers with seawater. Who knows what else may have taken them as newfound lair. Tunnels going out beneath the sea, yeah. 
there are stories of kind of Innsmouth-like colonies down in uh, the southwest, aren't there, in some tales? That's no and- way to talk about Plymouth. <laughs> so, yeah, who knows? That's, uh, that's definitely inspiration for some Cthulhu Britannica, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and also all these old unused mining tunnels. So, for example, in the Second World War, the British Museum took a lot of its rare books and artefacts and actually took those out and put those in old mining tunnels in Wales to protect them from German bombs. That's just asking for trouble. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's all sorts of things you could do with that. I mean, for example, what happens if the local cultists find out about this and suddenly it's Christmas? Yeah. When all these, all well, these it's not Christmas. They're cultists, God, <laughs> God damn it. It's cultist Christmas. <laughs> it's more of a cultural thing than a religious one. Okay. And this is when they go down there and find that all these rare books are things like oh, rare blueprints or yeah. um, architecture of old churches. and it, They might be worth a fortune, but they're completely irrelevant for what a cultist wants. <laughs> oh, but copy of the Necronomicon and a good sacrificial dagger. What can't you do with those, Matt? <laughs> and then Linus Larson, also on the Google Plus community, said, We contemplate storing spent uranium in vast underground chambers because... If it is one thing the underground does well, it is keeping stuff intact for geological time periods. Imagine having to design a set of foolproof symbols, void of the tools of language, to deter coming civilizations from waltzing into our spent uranium cache come 10,000 years from now. Now, imagine the old ones trying to deter us stupid apes not to waltz into their shoggoth holding pens, because they never sleep nor die, just wait. Now, that just brings back well, memories of Edge of Darkness when I watched that the first time round with the mine shaft there that had been used to store a hot cell. I think, yeah, going down there, that ended real well for the characters then. Yeah. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have been much worse if it had been a Shoggoth, would it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you don't get the line, 100 pounds of uranium, lethal dose to anyone in 10 yards, get it by the tap. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could have a bit of fun with that as well. Not only just people stumbling across that by accident while caving, or or maybe even combine the two ideas, you know, some company going down there to store uranium and ending up just irradiating shoggoths. You, know, <laughs> you, you not only have shoggoths rampaging around, but they're radioactive now. And Edwin Naji over on Google+, Plus uh, says the episode reminded him of a nuclear bunker that his undergrad school had been using as an annex to their library for many decades underground spaces and a collection of books not accessible by the public the scenario practically writes itself yeah and we're back to places you know storing forbidden knowledge underground and in hidden places Mm. yeah brings to mind the whole egyptology thing as well the whole uh, going into tutankhamun's tomb and being cursed and whatnot and also, I mean, thinking back to scenarios like the paper chase, just because someone's a ghoul now doesn't mean that they've lost their reading habit. And so storing all these books underground, whether or not they're forbidden knowledge, that seems like a good way of attracting bookworm ghouls. Because, mm. I mean, they don't even need light to read down there. They just sit there in the darkness, you know, sifting through page after page. And, yeah, it could be a very unfortunate librarian who goes along and disturbs them when they're deep in the flow of their reading. Well, then, to wrap things up, let's have some final thoughts on the subject of insanity in Lovecraft. As we've discussed, Lovecraft uses the theme of insanity and madness in his stories. Do we feel that 
it's realistically portrayed or how realistically do we feel it's portrayed or is it just a literary device it's a device i think it's a nice neat way well in lovecraft's eyes a nice neat way to wrap up a story like rats in the walls it's i don't particularly want to go down there and examine all that underground space so i'll have him go crazy and that's it uh i don't know um i mean this is something might dig into a, a bit more in the next episode But uh, when I think about, for example, Dagon, there are all sorts of weird effects you can have from psychological shock and mental trauma. PTSD is a fairly broad thing. I mean, there are certain classic symptoms that are common to it. But in some extreme cases, it can cause psychotic delusions. Uh, They can cause dissociative amnesia. uh, They can cause dissociative fugues. So the effect that we see, for example, in Dagon where the protagonist has that bout of amnesia, where he dissociates from reality, where he becomes addicted to morphine. I mean, all of that stuff actually isn't too unrealistic. Mm. And I think it's portraying that hereditary fear that he writes about in his stories, isn't he? He's portraying that. And it may not be clinically accurate always, but it certainly, in terms of symptoms... I think it it portrays some of those symptoms and that losing of one's rationality and following into his parents' footsteps as being a major fear of his. I mean, when we see the more extreme examples, like in The Rats and the Walls, there's more going on there than simple reaction to trauma. The protagonist of The Rats and the Walls isn't someone like the protagonist of Dagon who saw a monster and suffered some trauma as a result of it. This is someone who has unlocked something horrible that's in his bloodline and has reacted accordingly. Especially when very hungry. Yeah, Mm. but but looking at that from the point of view of realistic psychiatric symptoms, uh, that's not really applicable in this case because that's not what he's going through. Similarly, when we look at the effects of the people who are touched by Cthulhu's dreams... Looking at those in terms of normal reactions to stress or trauma doesn't really apply because this is the human mind being flooded with alien knowledge and impressions, something mm. that doesn't actually happen in the real world. So, you know, trying to pin real world psychiatric symptoms onto those is just not applicable. This is something I'll talk about a hell of a lot more in the next episode. You know, I do have some fairly strong feelings about the presentation of uh, mental health problems in games and in media and the more i think about it with lovecraft the less of a problem i have his portrayal isn't as sensationalized if you look at it in those terms as a lot of people have made out i'm sure it's not very realistic but the circumstances surrounding the induction of this insanity are completely unrealistic well i think as with many things in lovecraft whether it be his portrayal of mental illness or whether it be his portrayal of his monsters or his mythos or whatever what people remember and talk about is often quite different when you actually go back and look at it more closely and i think we all probably guilty of falling into that trap sometimes and as you referred to there scott in a future episode we'll be looking at insanity as it appears in the call of cthulhu role-playing game until then it's a good night from me cheerio from me And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com
Okay. I have eaten so much ice cream I was sick on several occasions. 